Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Conflict rages across our world, coupled with human rights abuses, natural disasters, and the impact of climate change, the future can seem quite ominous. The war in Ukraine has begun. Floods have destroyed 45% of Pakistan's croplands. What's happened behind these barbed wire fences may constitute crimes against humanity. China fought hard for the report not to be released. In this episode of The Bell Tell, we talk to UN conflict specialist Angus Lampkin about the threats to world security. As the population grows, the, the competition for resources is increasing and this competition has then a higher degree of likelihood to turn into conflict. The South Belfast man is currently working to mitigate the effects of conflict in Mali and West Africa. He's been to Sudan, Iraq and Afghanistan to name but a few. He'll explain what goes wrong, what leads to war, the threat from climate change, but also why we have to try and improve our world. Angus, in a sense, we talk about the UN all the time. And the UN goes here and the UN goes there. What is the UN? So the UN set up after the Second World War. Essentially, it's a, an organization of all the countries in the world. I think it's 215 nations. And so this, each of these countries has representation in the General Assembly. And then the General Assembly agrees on uh, what structures, instruments, uh, agencies, funds, programs are needed uh, to support what are considered to be generally agreed uh, goals for the planet. So coming from this, you have the, you know, the, the well-known names such as UNICEF, the, the Refugee Agency, the World Food Programme. And this ostensibly is how the you know, the, how all of the world can meet together to talk about its issues and have make general recommendations for uh, what should be done. But there's a second and one might say more important uh, entity that's within this, which is the Security Council. So the UN set up uh, on basically on the basis of the the powers, the, uh, the superpowers at the time. So we've got the Security Council has five permanent members. So you've got the United States, obviously, and then China, Russia, and then France, the United Kingdom. And if we see this as being sort of the, the, old, the old empires or the, the large countries. And then there's 10 rotating members 
of this. And essentially the Security Council was put in place to say, well, a club of the, the big nations, when something went wrong, it's like, what are we going to do? How do we intervene? And how do we resolve this? So coming from the Security Council, particularly is peacekeeping. So these are armed interventions uh, in countries. And then also you have special political missions. So these are effectively there to say when a country is struggling or something's going wrong, then the other countries around can intervene and say, do something to support. And they don't actually need the permission of that country to intervene. Um, they can do this on the basis of, uh, of the Security Council. Whereas the General Assembly is there to facilitate interaction between sovereign countries and won't interfere in a country's affairs, rather it will make, provide opportunities. And if it, I mean, the world is full of conflict, it's full of problems, it's full of not, disaster. How well does the UN work then? So it's always good to look at it in terms of the counterfactual. How much worse would it be if there wasn't a structure through which countries could meet, engage and discuss their issues? But of course, if we look at it on the base, you know, our aspirations are to have a peaceful and prosperous world. Uh, we fundamentally don't have this. We've got a, a very unequal world. And then we've also got many, many um, nations that are beset by, by conflict, uh, by natural disasters and are really, really struggling to function. So we see that, the, you know, the UN plan a role in terms of getting involved and supporting in these situations but does it actually have the amount of uh, support, resources uh, personnel, skills etc available to actually effectively resolve these issues and the answer is no but were not to be involved and attempting to put things to right, um, how much worse would it be and I think that's a very important thing to bear in mind whenever you consider uh, how effective the United Nations is organizations that have aims and if they have aims do they have values directing those aims and i wonder i look at the united nations a minority of countries in this world are democratic um, many countries are secular others believe in a religious way of life and that that shouldn't be optional there are countries who perhaps at least on paper <clears throat> think of themselves as part of a, a wider humanity. Other countries consider themselves to be at the top of humanity with spheres of influence. Is there anything we can agree on? And what, what's very important about the United Nations to remember is that it was set up in the aftermath of the Second World War when the balance of power across the world was fundamentally different uh, to how it is now. Essentially, the wealth of the world sat with the West. And then the West set up its, with the, you know, the Universal uh, Charter for Human Rights, sorry, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, so these are the values that we can all share and we can all agree on. And so the, the UN was set up at this time. It was propagated across the world and it was you know, recommended to all countries to sign up to this and all the member states of the United Nations have signed up to some basic principles of how they how they work and how they operate whether or not that would be exactly what they think now uh, is another matter but at the time that it was done and I think we need to remember that the power power balance was different you know the countries have signed up to this universal declaration and are agreeing to work uh, on this basis um, but of course the interpretation of this is the you know the right for each sovereign country uh, uh, to take forward. And, and then, of course, you know, it's not necessarily the case that what a country um, signs up to, that it actually does. So we see, you know, there's many, many instances where countries that are, you know, breaking the, the international conventions that they have signed themselves 
in order to pursue what are our national interests. And then, of course, we see that the United Nations itself doesn't actually have an enforcement power to come along and say, well, you've, you've broken these international conventions. This isn't, this isn't how it's set up. They, it's not there to interfere in the sovereign um, you know, the sovereign activities of a country. It's there to make recommendations and to support a strategy towards uh, these aims, these you know, these these aspirations. And uh, and we see that it's not it's not necessarily the case that it's able to achieve this. But this is what it's attempting. You've given us a very interesting overview of the UN. I suppose people might think they see people who work for the UN on TV and here you are. So what is it you do for the UN? The, essentially, the, the work that I've been doing for the last couple of years is representing the United Nations organizations on the ground in conflict-affected areas, specifically to the, the fighting forces. So which, uh, is it the government forces? Is it the rebelling armed group? But essentially communicating who we are to them and asking them to accept what we're doing, uh, understand it, accept that our activities, and often these are you know very basic humanitarian supports, accept that these are able to continue even while there's a conflict that's ongoing. And then also for us to provide some representation on behalf of the people when we see that these armed forces and armed groups aren't respecting the, you know, what we what we call international humanitarian law or the laws of war. A very basic thing we do is that in an insecure environment, there will be checkpoints. We talk to the armed forces or groups and say, we need to move through these checkpoints in order to meet the needs of the population. And we would ask that you facilitate this, that you you enable your personnel to understand who these people are and why they need to move through. So that means if I approach an armed checkpoint that they are already expecting, uh, me to be there, that they have an awareness of what the work is that I'm doing and they have a degree of trust that I'm uh, acting on behalf of the United Nations and not on behalf of another, like a, an opposing force, for example, or you're not a spy, you're not a, um, you're not there to interfere. You mentioned that you work in conflict zones. Now, the one you're working on at the minute uh, is, is Mali. I can tell you now that many people would struggle to point to it on a map, never mind know anything about the conflict there. What's happening and what is the UN trying to achieve? So Mali is a, a country that had a, an armed rebellion in 2012, uh, which essentially attempted to cut off the northern part of the country and set up the uh, the Republic of Azawad. Um, this, the government of the time requested the French uh, to intervene, to um, put down the rebellion. And, and this happened. Um, at the same time, they, the United Nations Security Council, with a lot of influence from the French, who I mentioned they're a permanent member, um, deployed a peacekeeping mission and increased the amount of humanitarian assistance uh, that was being provided in country. But the government in the, in the capital, in the south, is you know, generally viewed as being uh, uh, corrupt and not having the trust of the people in the north of the, of the country. And this was you know, the, the rationale behind the rebellion. So what the United Nations has attempted to do is facilitate a peace agreement, uh, improve the institutions of government so that it's more acceptable and you know, facilitate a transition that would make the, the country more stable. Uh, sadly, this hasn't uh, worked out uh, in any significant way at all. I think the, the collapse of Libya and the proliferation of the, the arms that Gaddafi's uh, 
army effectively have sold across the region and then an increasing um, degree of um, Islamic extremism uh, is is prevalent uh, and some of them are, um, are are Islamic extremists connected with Islamic State, some connected with Al-Qaeda. So you now have this government which controls apparently only 20% of the territory. You've got um, different armed groups in control elsewhere and you have a a peacekeeping mission attempting to manage the relations between these these different groups and move towards a, and who a peace are they? process. Who are, the, who, who are this peacekeeping group? So the, the peacekeeping mission is deployed by the United Nations Security Council, so on the agreement of the five permanent members and then the, the rot- and, and with the rotating members. Ostensibly, it's a, it's a largely African force, so neighbouring countries have contributed, I know, 1,000 approximately 1,000 troops each. And this has made up a, a force of 12,000 uh, soldiers, 2,000 police, and a couple of thousand civilians. Um, but along with that was also deployed a French um, operation, uh, which was there to effectively neutralize uh, the armed groups, um, particularly the Islamic uh, ex- extremist ones, and was there to you know a- attack and destroy effectively. And what's very interesting that's happened in, uh, in within this last year is that, that that operation has actually come to an end. The government has said they don't want the French anymore and the government have pivoted towards the, the Wagner Group, which is a private military contractor, but essentially seen as being an extension of the political power of Russia. And the rationale behind this is, you know, is basically summed up is that the French were too, offered too much challenge to the government and too much criticism and insisted on too much adherence to human rights norms whereas the russian help comes with a lot less a lot less criticism you were in afghanistan before mali how similar is the situation in mali or how different is it to afghanistan because people people know an awful lot more clearly about afghanistan for the simple reason that uh, two english speaking countries led the the military operation in afghanistan good afternoon On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. Yes, so what we saw in Afghanistan was the, you know, the failure of 20 years of international intervention. Um, The Taliban regained power last August. We now have a, you know, an absence of a Western military forces there and a very different configuration of the international support to Afghanistan. So it's moved from being um, very focused on building the institutions of government and and including security. And now it's moved much more focuses providing basic humanitarian assistance to people because the government of Afghanistan in its current form with the Taliban in charge is not considered to be sufficiently supportive of international norms to justify this uh, you know this investment in its uh, in, in, in institutions or indeed its uh, security structures so if we see Mali and Afghanistan and we compare them to each other you know you've got 10 years of international intervention from the West in Mali that comes to an end this year last year we had 20 years. Uh, of international intervention that came to an end and ostensibly ending in failure. Uh, um, We have a stronger Muslim uh, ideology um, and indeed you might say it's it's moving towards theocracy and certainly not 
moving away from being uh, secular societies. We also see decisions being made that say, you know, despite these offers of Western support, because of the conditionality associated with them, it's no longer interesting to have this uh, this type of support coming from the West. And then we all think it's a stronger pivot in Mali towards Russian support. But in Afghanistan, we see a larger interest from the Taliban in what potential support is coming from China, uh, from Russia, from Iran, from Pakistan. So we, in both, we effectively see the government of the time giving up on the Western recommended approach and a preference being expressed um, for other uh, supports uh, coming from countries that we shall s- might, might say are less vociferous in supporting you know, international human rights norms. Having said that, the UN Commission continues in Afghanistan, but that is basically just enough to keep people alive because it, it, there's a price to be paid. If you want to money to develop your country, then you will have to sign up to values of the West. Now, some people may say that's imperialist. Other might people say, well, I don't want my tax dollars going to prop up uh, the Taliban. Yes, and this is where we have the, the distinction that's made between supporting the population and supporting the government. And I think the, the, you know, on a humanitarian basis, the population should always be entitled to assistance, you know, because they're, you know, they're human beings. They, you know, we have this this understanding of each other, but the effort is then made to avoid providing resources, which arguably prop up the government and prolong its um its current approach. So. This, this attempt is being made. So in both, so we have a peacekeeping mission which will continue its work in Mali. We have a special political mission in Afghanistan which will continue its work. But what we have removed is the, the significant power uh, in the form of the French in Mali, in the form of the, the international forces in Afghanistan that can actually push and say, these are decisions you should make. So now the, the UN system is, relatively speaking to the government, has a lot less power to push these agendas forward. And so it needs to be much more accepting of the political realities on the ground and say, well, okay, well, this is where the government is currently. We still have our aims and objectives, but we don't have the same degree of power and influence to encourage the government to move towards these. It's a difficult question to ask, but I think whenever some, whenever we sit and we look at international affairs and we look at conflict zones and we look at human rights and we look at people where people are starving to death, mm-hmm. clearly... We care about some people more than others. We care about some peoples more than others. Why is that? I think we don't necessarily have the ability to express ourselves on on purely humanitarian terms, and we we certainly don't have the ability to do it as nation states. You know, we have nations have interests rather than having you know what we might call as being uh, an, an ideals that are that are global. You know, so a, a country will. In, intervene in instances where it feels like it's um, it has a direct interest in doing so um, and then we will have um, you know even within that country you might have different groups that have a preference for one population or another and might be supportive uh, might be more motivated to support like it's uh, it's it's it fairly depersonalized if you say, I'm just going to, you know, give my efforts to support everybody on an equal basis. It's quite hard to actually give an expression to what that actually means. 
I, I know you've worked with the Kurds, for example, and uh, I know that the Kurds seem to have friends in many places and enemies in many places, and it gets very, very complicated. Um, the Uyghurs are another group of people, stateless people, who have friends in some places and enemies in others. Is that a, an example of how people seem to choose sides through their own lenses or in terms of geopolitics rather than seeing people as individuals or peoples uh, uh, as distinct peoples deserving of, of rights themselves? Yeah, I think it was de Gaulle that said that countries don't have friends, they have interests. And of course, as those interests change, their relationships change. And in, in the case of the Kurds, if they're fighting your enemy, absolutely they're to be supported. But if they're viewed as being a going in the direction of an ideology that's contradictory to yours, then they should be oppressed. And we see, you know, the Kurds population crosses four major countries and we see, you know, a very different relationship being had by, you know, outside countries with them, depending on what's going in on within that country. Um, you mentioned the Uyghurs. I think this is a, like their issue is, you know, fundamentally connected to geography. You know, the the mountain range that effectively protects China from its western and northern neighbours. Uh, the Uyghur people live within it, and China's geostrategically inclined to make sure it controls this area in order to reassure itself, to feel protected, um, and to ensure that it controls its own sovereignty. China has made sure that it controls this area, and has done so in, in, in ways that are you know, widely viewed as being uh, as being highly problematic, but what's you know what's the motivation of China? Is it because this population in itself are rebellious and it, they want to establish their own uh, independent country? And certainly there is indications of nationalism there, or is it that this population might be vulnerable to um, exploitation by external actors, including um, Islamic extremists? And as such, uh, you know, China is needed to protect itself. Uh, with a very heavy uh, security approach against this international interference. And we remember, you know, China's a young country in its current form. It's, you know, less than 100 years old. And it's been, it's felt the need to protect itself from this external inter interference. And it has been concerned that its, um, you know, its, its government would be overthrown um, by um, you know, by, by a variety of its enemies. And this is why it's behaving in this way. So the, what we see is these, 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 these minority populations are often prisoners of these you know, wider geo, geopolitical uh, dynamics. And in some cases, you know, countries are able to manage these situations with a much more um, humane, shall we say, approach to including them in their country. And in others, we see that there's a much more you know, heavy-handed security approach to say, no, you are part of this country, you're within this border, and we expect you to behave and conform. Uh, to, you know, to our approach to things. And then, of course, you know, some people will object to this. And then, and, and sometimes we'll see then a heavier handed security approach. Uh, sometimes, and we would, you know, we'd always hope that, uh, you know, a country can manage these, what are essentially diversity issues, uh, with a much more inclusive approach. And you've been to Iraq. Do you see a bright future for Iraq? And how much do you think the invasion of Iraq has harmed international relationships in the long term? I think the, there's two fundamental problems with the invasion of Iraq. One is the you know the basis on which it was done. You know, I, the, the rationale for doing so was essentially being shown to be fundamentally flawed. 
But the second is that it failed in its attempt to what it was trying to do. Um, you know, with massive amounts of investment, you know, many lives lost, you know, huge military expenditure. And effectively what you now have is a system of, uh, of government in Iraq that is uh, not aligned with, the, uh, with those that invaded. You know, we see Iran is much more influential in Iraq uh, than any of the Western countries. So, what does that mean for uh, you know for the for the international system or for um, what we call the international interventionism? We see it's so we've we, our motivations are have been shown to be flawed uh, as you know, as the West, and we haven't actually been able to achieve a, a, an improved reality. You know, life under Saddam Hussein was not. It was incredibly difficult for many of the population of Iraq, but it was a middle-class country with a with a sizable economy where many people were able to live their lives and with much greater freedom than, than they have been for the last 20 years. You know what we've seen is a you know essentially chaos uh, ensuing with you know Sunnis and Shia uh, at war with one another. The Western inter- intervention continuing to attempt. You know, to influence what's going on, and of course, the arise of Islamic State. So, I think we, uh, as the West, we need to be very careful to think about you know, what exactly is our power, what is our motivation, and what kind of um, when we engage with other countries, you know, how do they perceive us? Do they see us as being uh, genuine in what we're attempting to do, and also do they see us as being competent? Um, I'm conscious, you know, when we talk as the United Nations, we're not speaking as us. We're speaking, you know, making this difference is talking about the United Nations and the West. Of course, they're not one and the same, but we often they are because of the degree of influence the West has on the international system, because of the amount of finance for it that comes from the West, there is a conflation that takes place. And I think this is something that we really do need to have a, a rethink about as we, you know, as we approach the, you know, the challenges that the, you know, the future is bringing to us, um, because we need to have credibility at the global level with all of the countries with whom we're trying to engage. And when you're talking about the challenge of the future, I mean, in the last six months, I mean, clearly a new, a new Cold War has has begun. An actual hot war has begun in Ukraine. How much has that changed the international layout? I think it has, it's transformed. Like it's, like I mentioned at the beginning that they have the Security Council where Russia sits with the United States, with France, with Britain. And we see that what's happened with the invasion of Ukraine is that it's, you know, fundamentally transformed uh, that relationship. And essentially the relationship's broken down. So we it will be very, very difficult uh, for those powers to meet again and discuss issues taking place elsewhere. I think the second thing we'd say is that the, the third countries or the non-aligned countries, how they perceive the different supports coming from the from the West and coming from Russia and then are they obliged to choose uh, between the relationship they have with one and the other. So we see all of these sanctions on Russia, we see sanctions on relationship with Russia, but we see countries also choosing to pivot towards Russia because it's more interesting to them. And so we see this divide uh, opening up beyond not just the West and Russia, but actually to the global level. You know, we have examples in the Central African Republic, in Mali, in Sri Lanka, and I'm sure there's many more where countries have chosen to pivot towards Russia for cheaper gas deals, um, uh, grain uh, exports, and they've they've made this decision to move in this direction. So we see the failure of the the Western policy to effectively control Russia. We see the lack of power um, to mobilize a kind of global coalition to say, 
to Russia. Uh, what it's doing is wrong. And one can't, can't help but think that these issues are connected, that while you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine is different from the invasion of Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq, from the perspective of uh, another country, do they just see this as this is what superpowers do? They, in their spheres of influence, when they want to invade a neighbouring country, they do. And as such, we see that these countries aren't necessarily making a moral or a legal distinction between the behaviour of the West or the behaviour of Russia. They're back to simply saying, well, what are our interests? What way should we align? What, um, what is the more interesting configuration for us to engage in? And so then if we see that, you know, the international system essentially being based on established norms and established values, we, sort of, we see it becoming uh, somewhat, it's being made subordinate to these relationships with these superpowers who are demonstrably not following uh, the norms that they have supposedly signed up to and the framework which they, as Security Council permanent members, have promulgated to the world for it to use. I know you're a very positive person and, you know, you go out there and try and make a difference. I can't help thinking we have painted a rather dark view of the world. Is, is that fair or do you see the good side of humanity because literally you're, you work in the most darkest places in the world? I think we must always have hope in humanity and with everything that's going on, there will be countless examples of very positive actions that um, human beings are taking. But we, you know, we have two key dynamics at the global level. One is population growth and the other is climate change. And so, you know, the world has a limited amount of space and all, as the population grows, the, the competition for resources is increasing. And this competition has then a higher degree of likelihood to turn into conflict. At the same time, climate change, or and I will go further, it's like the climate emergency, is causing a decrease in the amount of available land for farming. The habitable areas of the world are decreasing and Again, that's another driver for competition with uh, a likelihood that's going to lead to conflict. And I think it's the, the issue of climate change is particularly what we need to take incredibly seriously. You know, we, we haven't fully internalized it as being the driver of what are likely to be our future problems. So I would still, you know, fully recommend everyone to be optimistic and to be hopeful. But I think we do need to have that mindset change, which sees which sees the future for what it is as presenting us with more challenges and not less. Angus Lampkin, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. The clips were from the History Channel, the BBC, Channel 4 News, CBS and Sky News. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.